How is everyone? Well, good. Well, I have to confess that as I was preparing the last couple of days and, and looking over things the last few weeks, I've been drowning myself in historical information and uh, stuff I haven't visited for a number of years in regard to Revelation and all kinds of fun stuff and, um, you know, merging myself back into the debate because you can't discuss Revelation without plenty of uh, disagreement and varying views, divergent views. And uh, so, and my primary interest when it comes to uh, Revelation, its, its uh, authorship, dating, interpretation, all that fits uh, within the first four centuries of the church. And beyond that, um, I, I don't really care what anybody says about the book of Revelation, at least until post-Reformation period, uh, because the church went into um, you know, less and less interest in um, you know, searching the scriptures for truth and began to, uh, this adventure of uh, tradition and things of that nature. And um, so, yeah. And, and in fact, that's probably where most evangelicals are interested uh, when it comes to um, revelation is, is what were the early fathers saying, uh, the early historians uh, up to that point, and then uh, the, at the, the, the birth of the Reformation, uh, and, and then the debate was revived, and people began to discuss it again, and uh, to uh, try to rummage through and figure out what in the world it all meant. In fact, there was so much, uh, you know, so little dedication to the book of Revelation that, uh, that people knew excerpts from it and didn't care about the context. So one pope of the past was attributing texts from Revelation that were regarding the Antichrist, and he was attributing to himself. And of course, Spurgeon loved that, because uh, he just, maybe it was wishful thinking, just because he uh, had such a disdain for the papacy that uh, he would love for them to attribute those passages to, to the passages to themselves. And so it's quite comical sometimes how uh, people of the past have used the scriptures. Um, but it, it, it's sad as well. So, so anyway, um, we're going to you know, maintain our usual structure through the book of Revelation. We will not be getting into the outline tonight. Uh, although I'm going to um, provide for you what I guess we would call the divine outline for the book of Revelation, both in the Revelation and elsewhere. Um, Jesus has lots to say about that time period. And then, of course, the book of Revelation is actually the revelation of Jesus Christ. And um, so I think that he's a fairly good authority when it comes to the book of Revelation. And we should consult him thoroughly. So, so why don't we pray, and um, we'll get into our book tonight. All right, well, Father, um, I thank you, Lord, for eschatology, because embedded in it are your promises, uh, embedded in it are your plans, that the end is not just orchestrated, 
it's revealed. And you're the only one that does that. You share the end of all things from the beginning uh, and throughout time. And, uh, and then you put it all together for us. And uh, all we have to do eventually, ultimately, is realize it uh, in our experience. And we're, we're going to, whether we uh, witness it here or we come back with you. And um, yeah, so I just pray that as we look through uh, the book of Revelation, that we would be encouraged by it and, uh, and receive the blessing that is promised in it. So thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Did anybody read ahead through Revelation? All right. One, two, three, four. Sweet. Well, that, I think that's almost a record for a Wednesday night. It's one of the larger books in the New Testament. That's great. So what's that? Thursday. Or Thursday. I know. I did Wednesday night for 12, 13 years or whatever. So how many of you guys have heard people refer to the book as Revelations? Oh, okay. Uh, but you're, uh, you're not fooled by that. You know it's just the revelation of Jesus Christ. Yeah. yeah. The last book in the New Testament, Canon. And how many guys, when I say canon, you're like, what in the world does that mean? Uh, Margaret was uh, poking fun at me at the Meet the Pastors and Elders meeting that I was using all these big terms and, and uh, maybe some people didn't understand, but... Um, she wasn't really poking fun at me. That's only what Mike does. Margaret just points out reality. So um, a canon is a reed, a plant that grows along uh, rivers like in Egypt and uh, the Jordan River. And a canon, uh, when they come to maturity, they're almost all identical in length. It's a very interesting plant. And so the, the canon became kind of a standard of measurement. And so when we talk about the canon of Scripture, it's from here to here. And so the canon of the Bible is Genesis to Revelation. And the New Testament canon, of course, is Matthew to Revelation. And so that's what I mean by canon. It's a very old term. And uh, maybe it's archaic and we should come up with something else. But uh, it's in my, locked in my brain as the canon of Scripture. And I just think it's a cool word, probably because it sounds like a gun. But uh, uh, anyway, <laughs> yeah. And so not, it's the last book of the New Testament, and it's also the only uh, apocalyptic book in the New Testament. Uh, there are other uh, apocalyptic references in the New Testament, like Matthew 24, uh, Matthew 25, two chapters dedicated to uh, the apocalypse, if you will. Uh, some of the Paul's stuff contains apocalyptic things. Uh, you might be able to uh, get some of that out of Romans 11, uh, definitely in First and Second Thessalonians. Um, but the book of Revelation is dedicated to uh, just that. And the word uh, apocalypse, it's funny, you know, the world uses the apocalypse. We have this, the, the snow apocalypse uh, when it snows around here, and people in Wyoming are like, why would you say that? There's only three inches of snow. But, um, it's, yeah, that's, uh, we always have this, this doomsday kind of thing when it comes to the apocalypse. But uh, when a Greek person heard the word 
uh, apocalypsis, they heard unveiling or revealing, okay? Something that was previously concealed. Uh, like if I had an object up here with a sheet over it, uh, you didn't know what that was, and if, I, uh, if it was revealed, I would pull the sheet off. That's kind of, we're pulling, we're drawing the curtains and uh, showing what is behind there. So when it comes to the end times, um, we're talking about what is being unveiled. It's being revealed to us. And I think there's some interesting language that's used both in Daniel and then in the book of Revelation. So uh, in Daniel uh, 12, the, you know, Daniel's like, what in the world did I just see? And the angel tells him the most disappointing news ever. He says, it's none of your business. He says, seal up the vision. It's because it's for the end. And then in, when John gets the revelation, do not seal up the book. Okay, it's, it's for now. And uh, so that's interesting. So there is... Uh, a serious connection between the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation. And as we'll mention later in Jesus' discussion about the end times, he even makes reference to Daniel. He says, as spoken of by Daniel the prophet, and he says, let him who reads, that is Daniel, understand the reading. And so uh, that is a command from Jesus in regard to eschatology, uh, eschatology meaning last things, that we should know the book of Daniel. And so when we do our survey of eschatology, we're going to spend some time in Daniel. And we're going to bring it into relationship with the book of Revelation. Okay? Yeah. Good stuff. Uh, this particular document, the book of Revelation, uh, reveals Christ to us in his glorified state. And that's how he is revealed to John. And uh, does anybody remember what happens to John? When Jesus reveals himself, he passes out. Uh, it was a little much for John in his um, pre-glorified state uh, to just, you know, handle Jesus in his glorified state. And the document is the revelation of his management. And this is what uh, I think that Christians need to understand currently uh, with government uh, with pandemic, uh, with even if, if it's their health, if it's, it doesn't matter, that all things are under Jesus's management or the theological term is sovereignty. The word sovereignty really just means control, but it's, he's in control. He's managing everything pertaining to the end, okay? Uh, so therefore, when you read about Antichrist, when you read about the beast, when you read about the insanity of the end, uh, those things are all being used as a means to his managed and revealed end. When you read Revelation, Jesus is in charge. Things are not unraveling uh, as if Satan is in charge, even though he thinks he's in charge. He, he's, you know, in the end, uh, God will give strong delusion to people, but he's also going to give strong delusion to Satan because he's the most delusional individual ever. Okay? And he will think that he's in control and that by leveraging humanity, he's going to gain control, full control. 
Um, and you would think that during the temptation of Christ, which is filled with es eschatological implications, uh, that he would have discovered that he's not in control. But he's not uh, the best of learners. So Revelation, the apocalypse, is the story of Jesus' management of all things pertaining to the end. And, uh, uh, and then because the end is orchestrated, I should do an interpretive dance to that. Just relax, it's okay. Okay. <laughs> you should probably desound it. <laughs> In fact, that reminds me, I should probably get my stuff done up here lest I get texts from John Wiley's in the house, so never know what's going to happen. But anyway, because the end, as we have it here, is orchestrated and revealed to us, God is intending for it to be a blessing to us, okay? A blessing to us. Uh, John says, blessed is he who reads and who hears the words of this prophecy and keeps those things which are written in it, for the time is near, Revelation 1. Three. Now, the phrase to read and hear means to read and understand. To read and understand. Uh, that's interesting. God desires to bless us, but the blessing comes not in simply hearing, uh, but understanding what is said. Okay? Um, yeah, and then also, sadly, though, what God intended to be a blessing, uh, like Paul's discussion of eschatology in 1 Thessalonians 4.18. He gives this uh, sequence of uh, events in the end, and he says, encourage one another with these words. And the same with that, as the same with the book of Revelation, many have made it a point of contention and disagreement, which has caused many to just disregard the book and leave it to scholars to argue over. That is not what God intended this book to be about. Okay? It's just not. He wants people to be blessed by it. And for me to know that God, that Christ is in control of my life and uh, the lives of everyone around me, including principalities and powers, governments, disease, natural disaster, whatever, um, that's really comforting. It's really nice, okay? So, yeah. I just too many unfortunate things. So hopefully in the next couple weeks, we'll understand the book better and we'll enjoy, uh, the, we'll maximize the enjoyment of the blessing or at least get on uh, our way to do that. So as usual, we've talked about authorship. Uh, we've talked about date. Uh, we've talked about special considerations in an outline. Um, yeah, so we're going to do that tonight. And what is very interesting about authorship and date of the book of Revelation affects the way that people interpret the entire book. And so I will be spending some interesting time on this. At least it was interesting to me in my studies. Uh, but there was so much I wanted to apply here that uh, I probably drowned myself in it. So authorship, 
Uh, I have some things up there for you for your notes, but I'll kind of walk you through it. We, when we look at uh, evidence of the scriptures, we talk about internal evidence, that which, which we find in the text itself. And then we talk about external or extra-biblical evidence. That would be what uh, those closest to the witnesses have said. We look at historical events, uh, things like that. Sometimes we'd even look at science, depending on uh, what it is. Um, as far as the internal or biblical evidence for John's authorship, uh, I think these are the appropriate things to consider. First, John identifies himself five times uh, within the book, um, but John doesn't say John the Apostle. He just says John. And so, of course, people love to argue, and they say, well, how do you know it's John the Apostle? Uh, first of all, John uses his name with confidence uh, that everyone knows which John he is talking about. Uh, he doesn't see the need to clarify and identify because he's so well known. And of course, we know these writing to the seven churches of Asia, and the seven churches of Asia obviously know who this particular John is. Uh, another John, someone other than the apostle, he's really the one that would have to clarify who he is. Okay, uh, not John the apostle, especially if he expected these seven churches to hear and heed what he had to say, because the early church was not into just hearing what anybody had to say. Uh, they wanted to hear from the apostles unless that whole church was apostate. Okay, So also, John speaks um, uh, to these seven churches of Asia with apostolic authority. Okay? Not something that anybody else could do. And um, typically, uh, we don't see one person speaking to multiple churches with authority unless they were an apostle. It's not until later in church history where we see the development of the Catholic bishops, where they began to wield authority over multiple con congregations. But this early in history, no way. Okay, not, not a thing. Uh, John even suggests his own apostleship in Revelation 2.2. 2. Um, and then also, uh, something that is unique to John is referring to Jesus as the Word. That's unique to John's Gospel, and it's also something that happens in his epistle. Another thing that is, I think, very interesting in John's writing was to affirm his testimony of the facts, both at the beginning of a letter and then at the end. And we see that in the book of John. Uh, we see it in 1 John, and we see it in Revelation. So in Revelation uh, chapter 1, verse 2 and 3, that's where he talks about his testimony. Okay? And then he basically repeats it in Revelation 22, verse 8. And then in John 1.14, he testifies. And then in John 21.24, he testifies again. And then at the beginning, uh, in 1 John 1.1, 1, 1, at the end, in 1 John 5.13. So when you talk about something that an author typically does that's, that's kind of coined by him, uh, that's something that John did. Okay, That you don't see really elsewhere. Also, when you read certain people... Uh, I think I've probably read Paul enough that I could identify a plagiarist or somebody that was just utilizing his style of writing. Uh, well, John had a particular style of writing, and we see, it, see those things very similar from his gospel 
and then to the book of Revelation. Okay, style, vocabulary. A.T. Robertson, uh, he says the following. He says, there are numerous coincidences in vocabulary and style between the fourth gospel and the apocalypse. Now, when it comes, when somebody like A.T. Robertson, who uh, mapped all of Greek grammar for us, English, Western people, uh, if anybody can identify that stuff, it's A.T. Robertson. Okay. How many of you guys are familiar with Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown? Commentators? I'll tell you, I have become, over the years, I, I, I had I, an aversion to them when I first started to study the scriptures and get acquainted with commentaries. But I think over the last 10 years, I've just really grown to appreciate uh, those guys. And uh, I'll tell you, their introductions to books of the Bible are some of the best out there. Uh, they're difficult to use uh, in a presentation form, but the systematic information they give is just so helpful. So if you don't have the commentary from Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown, I, I encourage you to get it. They, they're very good at handling the text. They're true to the text and uh, very evangelical. And um, So anyway, uh, so Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown, William Hendrickson, uh, many others, they provide an extensive list of commonality between John's vocabulary and style from his gospel to the book of Revelation in all of their introductions to Revelation. Um, and I mentioned William Hendrickson as well. I do not advise you to get his stuff unless you really enjoy thorough German-style details. Okay, uh, He just goes on and on and on. He presents wonderful arguments. He presents uh, all the facts that anybody would ever want. And uh, I love him for that, uh, but some people would find him too something or other. So I love reading him, especially when I have time to read him. So, so that's the, the internal evidence uh, regarding the, the authorship to Revelation. Then there's also a great deal of external evidence uh, that corresponds with all of this. Uh, in his writing uh, called Against Heresies, Justin Martyr, he was an early church father, um, Justin Martyr, uh, he writes that John the Apostle was the author. Um, Irenaeus attributes authorship to John the Apostle, the shepherd of Hermas. Uh, the Muratorian Canon has, uh, okay, it's the Muratorian Canon, so it's a Bible. Uh, it has the revelation in there, attributing it to John and then many, many fathers uh, attribute uh, the book to John the Apostle. Um, in his New Testament uh, historical evidence, Samuel uh, Tregellis, he says this, There is no book of the New Testament for which we have such clear, ample, and numerous testimonies in the second century as we have in favor of the apocalypse. Yeah. He says, the more closely the witnesses were connected with the Apostle John, as was the case with Irenaeus, or Irenaeus, the more explicit is their testimony. That doubt should prevail in, after, in, in later ages must have originated either in ignorance of the earlier testimony or else from some supposed intuition of what an apostle ought to have written. The objections on the ground of internal style can weigh nothing against the actual evidence it is in vain to argue a priori 
that John could not have written this book when we have the evidence of several competent witnesses that he did indeed write it. I love the opening to that. There is no book of the New Testament for which we have such clear, ample, and numerous testimonies in the second century as we have in favor of the apocalypse. Now, what we see in the development of the canon as the whole world began to embrace the various books of the New Testament as they were copied and then sent to all of the churches. Of course, Revelation would be one of the last ones to be accepted because of its, late, its later date, which we're going to talk about now in just a sec. So um, an interesting fact from history and we're going to spend a lot of time discussing the historical facts because I think that they should always weigh in uh, with the way that we receive things today. Historically, those who later on rejected John's authorship did so because they disagree with John's view on the millennium. That's an interesting thing uh, in Revelation 20. Uh, and, and that was their observation from the book of Revelation. They knew that Revelation... Uh, clearly taught that if you take the text literally, that Christ would return and that he would reign over the earth for a thousand years. So they rejected it on theological grounds rather than textual uh, or historical grounds. Very interesting. Yeah, They knew, these people that said that um, John didn't write it because the text teaches uh, what we'll call chalism. We'll talk about that later. Uh, a millennium where Christ would reign over the earth. So let's talk about the dating of, of John. Of course, I have the date up there. Now I have to defend it. Uh, there are many that would disagree with me, and many of them are my friends. Okay? Uh, and when it comes to uh, eschatology, the book of Revelation, I have friends that embrace every view that's out there. And our views are divergent. And uh, I have lost friends uh, over this issue. Uh, not because I was unwilling to be their friend, but because they just they couldn't handle the disagreement. And so they parted ways, which I think is very sad. Because the way that we view eschatology, from my perspective, it's a fundamental of hermeneutics, uh, of interpretation. It's not a fundamental uh, requirement for fellowship. Okay, So I have friends, uh, very close friends, that could not be more divergent in their views of eschatology. And yet we, we love having conversations together. Uh, we love throwing the facts in each other's faces. It's very playful. Um, and I know that that irritates some people. John MacArthur hates it. Uh, if you know who John MacArthur is, he hates the playful disagreement in eschatology. Uh, but I would rather have some playful disagreement than have ungodly division. Okay. So uh, tonight, uh, knowing that there are people in here that disagree with me, uh, that's okay with me. Um, if that's not okay with you, you're the one with the problem. Okay? I just want you to understand that. It's immature, it's ungodly to divide over this issue. And so I have my position, and I don't look down on you if you differ with me. I think you're wrong. Uh, but that doesn't mean I think that you're less of a believer uh, you're not some kind of second-class uh, Christian. Uh, you're just wrong, and uh, that's just the way it is. So, uh, so I'll keep it playful with you and disagree with you, um, 
but I won't divide over it in the disagreement. Okay? All right, Mike? Okay. I don't, I don't know that me and Mike disagree, but he would never disagree with me on anything. So, yeah. Um, yeah, so evangelicals have collectively settled on John's authorship of the book, but there's a fair bit of disagreement over the date of the writing. And uh, so, yeah, in the earliest years of the church, it, it was well accepted uh, that John wrote the Revelation very late, excuse me, in the first century, uh, as late as 95 AD. Okay, the early church, uh, the earliest fathers, that was standard among them, that it was a late authorship, uh, as you see on the screen. Uh, it was later rejected by some, and an earlier date began to be argued, okay, uh, but the early dating method was not based on textual or historical grounds as much as it was on theological grounds, mostly as a rejection, as I said, of even the authorship of Chalism, of millennialism, uh, where Christ would come to the earth literally and reign over the earth for a thousand years. But the earliest fathers of the church who were closest to the apostle testified that John wrote the Revelation late okay, in his work titled Against Heresies, Irenaeus said that John wrote Revelation toward the end of Emperor Domitian's reign, which ended in 96 AD. Okay, so that's when one of the earliest fathers of the church said that it was written. Uh, those who support the early date of Revelation, uh, being before 70 AD, uh, put uh, a few arguments forward. I want to give you those just to be fair, and then I'll respond to them. Okay? And I'll be as gracious as I can in my response. Um, yeah, so the, some say before 70 AD. And if you believe that, it will affect the way that you interpret the book of Revelation. So we are going to have to talk about interpretation, okay, eventually. Uh, if you have a later date, it, uh, typically, because uh, there's always hybrids and, and degrees and stuff, it typically puts you in two other camps of interpretation. And I'm not going to drown you with interpretations tonight or all of the, the name-calling that, as far as what camp you belong to and so forth. But here are some of the arguments of the early view. Uh, in Revelation 2.23 and 3.10, uh, John mentions the persecution of the churches of Asia. Okay, not just the persecution of the church in general, but the persecution of the church in Asia, which they believe fits within the time of Emperor Nero's persecution of the church in 68, 67, 68, 69 AD. So the response uh, is that, first of all, there is no historical evidence that Nero's persecution extended beyond Rome, but it does fit with the persecution of Emperor Domitian in 96 AD, which agrees with the late date for Revelation. So those that say that Nero's persecution extended beyond Rome the burden of evidence falls on their shoulders to prove that, and it's not, it's not easy to demonstrate. But when it comes to Emperor Domitian uh, in the, the late first century, it's much easier to defend. Okay? Uh, second argument, the early daters also bring up the passages in Revelation that talk about the worship of the beast, saying that this is a reference to the emperor cult. Now, the emperor cult is where 
uh, people within the Roman um, Empire had to annually go to a censer filled with incense, and next to it would be a burning fire, and they would pinch some of the incense, and they would say, Caesar is Lord, and then they would cast the incense and give their um, devotion to Caesar. So it was called emperor, the emperor cult or emperor worship, okay? And um, so, and they, those that with the early date say that Nero enforced the emperor cult, the emperor cult. Well, first, there's no concrete evidence that Nero actually enforced it. So again, if that is your position, the, the burden of proof again rests on your shoulders and you have to demonstrate that historically. And that is another thing that's not easy to do. Um, it is known factually, though, that Domitian uh, insisted that he be called Lord God <laughs> later on in the first century. But I don't think that it actually refers to any of the Roman emperors. When we consider the book of Daniel and 2 Thessalonians in conjunction with Revelation, you get the sense that this person who requires people to worship him is more than an emperor, and he does things that no Roman emperor really ever did. Okay? Uh, of course, I believe this to be Antichrist uh, in, in the latter times. Third, the reference in Revelation 20, verse 4, talks about beheading as the consequence for not worshiping this individual. But in the Roman Empire, only Roman citizens were beheaded. That was considered a privilege. Uh, if you were convicted of, of, of capital crimes as a Roman citizen, they did not crucify you as they did non-citizens or kill you in some other manner, uh, you know, throw you to the beasts in the arena or something like that. They would behead you, okay? Well, the problem is, is the early church consisted mostly of slaves who are not citizens. So to say that they were beheading people uh, would mean that those who were the majority of all people were citizens. It was a very strange uh, thing to come from some Christian historians that I think know better. Um, yeah. So, for example, uh, Paul was a Roman citizen and he was beheaded, whereas Jesus was a Jewish non Roman citizen and he was crucified. Okay. You had to be a citizen to be beheaded. And so this makes, it creates a serious problem for the daters. So uh, the, the persecution and all of this seems to transcend uh, the Roman era, and a later date uh, is better. A third argument, uh, John uses words like near, chapter 1, verse 3, and quickly, uh, chapter 3, verse 11, 22, verse 12, uh, to refer to the timing of certain events. And the early daters say that the only thing near to being fulfilled was the destruction of the Jewish temple in 70 AD, so John must have written before that time. Okay. Well, uh, in response to this, the word near happens to be a relative term uh, in the Greek language. In fact, there are times when it has to be clarified by other words in the context to define what it really means. For example, in Matthew 24, 33, Jesus said, know that it is near, even at the doors. 
It is near even at the doors. The word near is clarified to the reader so they know that something will occur, immediate, occur immediately after the fulfillment of, of other events. Okay? Yeah. Also, the word quickly does not always mean immediately. It can mean, uh, as it often does, suddenly. In other words, the fulfillment of the things in Revelation would not happen immediately after they were revealed to John, but when they do happen, they would happen suddenly in rapid succession. Okay, rapid succession. Again, A.T. Robertson, uh, this, the Greek scholar, uh, he says that this word should not be understood in Revelation to mean soon or immediately, but suddenly. Suddenly. And his interpretation of the word is interesting, seeing that he, over his life, wavered uh, between two different views of eschatology, but he never wavered on the view of the word. Okay? And I think possibly the word might have been what messed him up. And, uh, but who knows? Yeah. And uh, he, I think where he struggled most with the word was where it's used in Revelation 11, verse 14. And we'll, maybe we'll talk about that later. It refers to the sixth trumpet judgment. Uh, and uh, A.T. Robertson also demanded that uh, the date of the book of Revelation was 95 A.D. So, anyway, um, as I said before, however you date Revelation will depend on, uh, affect the way that you interpret it. And I think that the early dating leads to some strange conclusions. And all of my friends that are, um, we call them preterists, um, that's, it's a Latin term, basically means past. Um, I, I tell them that all the time. It guess comes to some wild conclusions. And, um, but they think I have some wild conclusions too because I think that revelation should be taken literally as possible. Uh, not without the utilization of symbols and the such, but they should be taken in their, in their plain sense, just like we do in normal everyday language when figures of speech are used and symbols and so forth. So the mind, mind you, the mind always searches for literal meaning, right? If it didn't, you would live in a very strange world. And, uh, so we're always searching for the literal. So anyway, I believe that the evidence, both textually and historically, lead to this late date of 95, about 95 AD for the writing of it. Um, special considerations. I'm going to hold on this because, uh, for one, it could be overwhelming, but I think they'll come out as we uh, discuss the outlines and, and so forth. So, so let's talk about Chalism as far as doctrinal contributions. How many of you guys have even heard the word Chalism? Some of the Catholics are like, yeah, but I don't think it's the same thing. Chalism. It's not a chalice or anything like that. Chalism. Uh, it, the word basically means a thousand, okay, a thousand. And uh, the early um, fathers of the church that believed that Christ would return to the earth physically and that he would literally rule over the earth for a thousand years, they were called chalists, chalists. And so the, the theology is called chalism. Today we call it premillennialism, so millennium being a thousand and then, of course, the debate rages on uh, at what time does Jesus arrive? Is it before the millennium, after the millennium, 
And what the heck is the millennium anyway? What happens in it? Um, that's another fun discussion. Uh, so the millennial views typically are amillennial, and the alpha privative means without a millennium. Premillennial means that he, Jesus returns beforehand, and the postmillennialism, which is the craziest one of all, uh, is that he comes afterwards, after the earth has been evangelized for Christ, and uh, it's, it's a happy world. So that's why we call postmillennialism optimistic amillennialism, because everything is supposedly getting better, which I think is probably the strangest view of eschatology. And uh, Anyway, I, I don't want to get on that tonight. I'll run out of time real fast. Real fast. So let's get moving here. So Chalism, the doctrine, it's a doctrine. That Christ would physically return to the earth, restore the Davidic kingdom, rule from his throne in Jerusalem over all of planet earth for a thousand years, mentioned in Revelation chapter 20. Okay? If you are a literalist, uh, then you have no other conclusion to come to, uh, but the Revelation preaches premillennialism. Okay? Um, yeah. Now, Chalism was the standard view among the earliest fathers of the church. It was almost held unanimously in the early church. Uh, but this, the view slowly eroded, mostly due to the influence primarily of one man named St. Augustine, uh, who formerly held to Chalism in his earlier life. And the reason that he changed is very, very odd. Now, if you don't think um, that St. Augustine had an effect on your theology today, in some regard, you're probably mistaken. Okay? Few people in church history have affected the way that, that uh, believers uh, view the scriptures uh, than Augustine. He is one of the, the people that did that. Uh, Martin Luther, of course, would be another. John Calvin, uh, those guys all affected. In fact, most Calvinists believe they're that Calvin was standing on the shoulders of Augustine in some way, shape, or form, okay, in regard to predestination and sovereignty and things like that. So anyway, he's a big guy uh, as far as his influence. Um, yeah, Augustine later rejected the doctrine, again, not for theological reasons, as some before him had done, but for what he thought was moral reasons. For moral reasons, he rejected the doctrine. Augustine had a quarrel with a group called the Donatists who uh, clung to Chalism strongly and in order to avoid any agreement with them, any association, he, uh, he became critical of Chalism. So instead of commenting on Revelation 20 itself, he reacted to the Donatist interpretation of it. And he said this, let me read this to you, see if you can catch some of the the interesting stuff in here. He says, those, speaking of the Donatists, who on the strength of this passage, Revelation 21 through 6, have suspected that the first resurrection in fut is future and bodily, have been moved, among other things, specifically by the number of a thousand years, as if it were a fit thing that the saints should thus enjoy a kind of Sabbath rest during that period. And this opinion would not be objectionable if it were believed that the joys of the saints in that Sabbath shall be spiritual 
and consequence on the presence of God, for I myself too once held this opinion. They, the Donatists, now listen to this, assert that those who then rise again shall enjoy the leisure of immoderate carnal banquets furnished with an amount of meat and drink such as not only to shock the feelings of the temperate, but even to surpass the measure of credulity itself. Such assertions can be believed only by the carnal. A little surprising that a man like Augustine would reject chalism based upon feasting. <laughs> so let me explain some of that to you. Augustine was a monk. Augustine was a monk. And so as a monk, he could not tolerate the idea of God's people feasting. Feasting. To him, such a thing was immoral and therefore, from a monastic perspective, Revelation 19 and 20 needed to be interpreted differently, spiritually and allegorically, to avoid such carnal conclusions. I'm scratching my head, not because it's appropriate for his interpretation. It's too bad that the Old Testament is filled with the feasts of the Lord, where feasting is required by God, and too bad Jesus is found eating and feasting frequently in the Gospels. What do you think the Passover meal was? It was one of the feasts of the Lord, where God even commanded that you should come into my presence three times a year, be festive, and eat before me. That is strange. And too bad monasticism is unbiblical, Monkery, okay, and contrary to the gospel, along with two demonic doctrines from it. That is, forbidding to marry and to eat foods that God has created for us to eat. Paul says that is a doctrine of demons. Okay, so monasticism, monkery, is unbiblical, it's counter to the gospel, and there are some demonic things about it. Okay, very strange. And then sadly, his non-literal interpretation eventually, over time, won the church over after his death in 430 AD, and his position held until just after the Reformation in the 16th century, when people once again started to look at Revelation more literally. And as I said, I mentioned Augustine because if it were not for him, I'm not sure that the allegorical interpretation would have ever gotten a foothold in the church. I'm not sure that it would have. Okay? Uh, it's interesting. There was two areas early on in church history that had become subject to allegory. Uh, it was Genesis 1 through 11, and then it was Revelation. Okay? Now, uh, I guess it was about a year and a half ago, I read a book called The Quest for the Historical Adam. It's one of the best books I've ever re uh, read. Because what it does is he enforces the authority of God's word from Genesis on. It's very good. And, um, but there's something interesting about it. But anyway, the author observes in his book, what he does is he, he begins with the earliest authors of Scripture in the Old Testament, and he just begins to move forward. And he looks at every reference to Genesis 1 and through 3, 
and looks at how they interpret Genesis 1 through 3. So from the Old Testament prophets, New Testament apostles, and then the early church fathers up to the present day, how people have viewed it. And it's very interesting what he observes uh, in the way that the biblical authors interpret. And they all had a consistent way of looking at Genesis uh, 1 through 3, and uh, they all conclude very clearly that Adam is a historic person who was created by God immediately, like that, and that he lived in the garden, a real place. He really, literally, historically sinned, rebelled against God, fell, and was kicked out of the garden, and so forth. Uh, all authors of Scripture interpret that story as being actual history, okay? not a poem, not an allegory, not something else. Okay? Yeah. Jesus also is included in there, uh, who, reference, who references Adam and the beginning frequently as a real person, real events. So here's what's interesting, because I know the author, I know his uh, theological background, and I, I still need to. What I want to do is I want to write him, and I, I want to say what I would like you to do is take that same, the same standard that you set up for Genesis 1 through 3 and apply it to Revelation. Because I know he is not a chalice. He's not a premillennial. And, uh, but if he was to apply the same rules, the same standard, he would come to the same conclusion. He, he would be forced to. And so I need to write him and, and just... And I would love the discussion with him. But anyway, if you're interested in the book, I have it. Uh, it may not be your cup of tea, but I really dig that stuff. And um, so... So those early fathers of the church who departed from the literal view were influenced by what is called the Alexandrian school of thought. So the early fathers of the church, up to about the 5th century, that abandoned a literal interpretation, all of them were influenced by the Alexandrian school of thought. This is not my opinion about history, it's just a fact of history. And that school of thought was a product of Greek philosophy and paganism, okay, where things were understood spiritually and non-literally. Uh, men like Clement of Alexandria, uh, Origen, a man named Origen, uh, who was a very strange man, uh, Augustine, and uh, yeah, those men were trained uh, with that philosophical base, uh, which ended up grieving many of the other fathers from Antioch who had, did not have that influence from Greek philosophy. And there's an interesting quote from Theodore uh, Mopsuestia. Uh, he's been dead for nearly 2,000 years. And he has a response to these people that were beginning to do this with the scriptures. He says, whenever they speak of their allegorical interpretations, I say again and again that these are truly dependent on the pagans who have invented these kinds of interpretations in order to set aside their own fables as they are now setting aside the true facts present in the divine scriptures. What he's referring to uh, is the Alexandrian philosophers who were embarrassed by the earlier Greek writings like the Odyssey from Homer. They were embarrassed by them. Okay? 
embarrassed, and which if taken literally, they understood would be absurd. So what they did was they spun the story with an allegorical interpretation which spiritualized the text, making the Odyssey spiritually palatable to these intellectuals. Regardless if that's what Homer meant by what he wrote. Okay? And so Theodore accuses some of his contemporaries in the church of being just like the Alexandrian pagans, but instead of being embarrassed about Greek literature, they were embarrassed by some of the things in the Bible, like the Genesis record and the revelation of Jesus Christ. So what some of the early fathers did to make the text more palatable was they adopted the allegorical interpretation from the pagans. Okay? In fact, when you read the early fathers that embraced a non-literal or allegorical interpretation, uh, they, they, they show their admiration for the Greek philosophers. So you had a division in the church from west to east, and those not influenced by philosophy were saying, get the philosophers out and start interpreting the scriptures in the, from the plain reading of the text. And so, but what happened historically is the allegorist eventually won over uh, for about a thousand years. So, and so I agree with the fathers uh, from Antioch, we should get the Greek philosophical methods of interpretation away from the interpretation of scripture and keep to the example that we see from the biblical authors, which is what we call the, the literal, historical, and grammatical interpretation of the text, no matter where we are in the text or what kind of literature we're dealing with. So we're calling for a consistent hermeneutic from Genesis to Revelation. Okay, and we'll get into that more later. So the plain reading of the text should govern our understanding of the text. I think the best way really to understand this is to read the Bible like you would a newspaper in your own language, in your own culture. And you're reading the author and their plain meaning by the use of figures of speech and so forth, and then coming to conclusions that way. Okay? If you do it any other way, there's no other way to know that you're right. As soon as you say that the text does not mean what it says, who gets to determine what it means? You understand? Okay. And uh, if we do that, then we become the arbitrator of the text. And uh, I'm not comfortable with that. Uh, I prefer a consistent way of doing it. So I believe that we must always remain textual. So that is the major doctrinal issue in the book of Revelation. Okay. And uh, we'll talk about that more later. So quickly, for outline, if you would like, uh, Jesus provides uh, two what I call divine outlines for the book of Revelation. The first is found, and it's more actually more detailed, is Matthew 24, uh, verse 3 through 31. Okay? And I think that his um, outline and interpretation of some of the events is final. Is final. Cannot be argued with. All right? And then in Revelation 1.19, he gives a brief outline of the revelation. Write down the things that you have seen, okay? the things that are and then metatauta, the things that will take place after this. And metatauta is uh, after these things, or this is what's next, or what's coming next. You see that all through the book of Revelation. 
and which creates, uh, I believe, at least some degree of uh, sequential things in it. So, yeah. And then I have Daniel mentioned there, and we need to consult the book of Daniel because Jesus references it in the very middle of his uh, outline. And, uh, and what he mentions in the middle of his outline is an event that takes place in the very middle of our eschatology. Coincidence? I really doubt it. So, Anyway, next week we'll get into those outlines and we'll see how far we get and we'll get into some of the details, the scheme of things, and then we'll do a survey of all of it. And uh, what I'll do is I'm going to try to keep you out of the trees and keep your view of the forest, all right? Because I don't want to get drowned in a discussion over, um, I don't know, there's so many things in Revelation that we could have a good godly debate over, but let's save that for another time. All right, if you have questions up to this point, uh, I'd love to talk to you about those, uh, playfully, of course. And uh, so go ahead and stand up and we'll pray. I'll get you out of here. All right, well, Lord, thank you for your word. And um, I pray that through all of this, we would just be reminded, even when there's going to be many little details that we don't understand, that um, you are the God of the details. You know what they are, and they're within your sovereign control and that you are guiding them to your intended end so that you might be the victor, the champion of world history and of humanity and uh, over all principality and power. And uh, so thank you, Lord. Uh, I just pray that that would be a reminder to us, Lord, especially as they uh, finish the count of the ballots. <laughs> and, uh, and in reality, Lord, uh, ultimately, in the scheme of things, it will make no difference to the things that we do in regard to our loyalty to you, Lord, in discipleship and in preaching the gospel, loving you and loving people. So just lead us through the chaos, Lord, so that we might continue to do those things effectively for your glory. So Lord, we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Lord bless you guys.